This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 6th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. At the heart of America's massive prison population is the drug war. That from economist Daniel D'Amico. He argues that ending so-called mass incarceration demands an appreciation for just how states take their cues from federal prerogatives. We spoke in June. Would you argue that uh, the broad institutional opposition to over-incarceration, mass incarceration, whatever term you want to use, is aimed at the wrong thing? I mean, if uh, if we're outcome-oriented, I do think that there's something conspicuous about just the sheer net size and amount of incarceration. So if someone says, oh, I really want to fix mass incarceration, um, I'm willing to accept uh, that it's it's conspicuous in and of itself. Um, it, which is, as an economist, that's actually really, really difficult to to come to grips with. Like uh, the 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 status quo bias of economists is that stable outcomes are uh, are efficient or or in a condition of equilibrium. Um, so so if 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 you put me in a room with a bunch of activists who are saying, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm really really uh, uh, puzzled and 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 concerned about mass incarceration. I'm I'm definitely willing to say, yeah, this is this is conspicuous. It's very very worrisome that our government, um, state, local, and federal, have this extreme punishment ability on the citizenry. And how does that compare with the rest of the world? I mean, in in terms of both like raw numbers and percentages. I mean, in percentage terms, we're we're the largest incarceration nation on the planet. Um, We've we've plateaued a bit. Uh, a lot of these reform efforts are having some traction. We're we're not increasing our growth rate um, nearly as much as we have. But again, I mean, I'm not super confident that that's a byproduct of the activists. Um, it's also in stride with great uh, budgetary uh, cluster cusses at the governmental level. So, um, yeah, particularly at the state level where budgets have been strained considerably. Right. We've got we've got tons of states that are basically bankrupt, so they can't build more prisons at the rate that they were in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And we've also got uh, a sort of confused element. I remember I had a conversation with Veronique de Rouge, um, where she was saying, oh, but the, the numbers have plateaued. And I said, yeah, that's hopeful. On the other hand, we just dumped a bunch of new money through um, through quantitative easing and, and all of those sorts of things. So I'm really hesitant to see what new equilibrium of governmental expenditures will come down the pipeline from that. She gave me some peace of mind that a lot of that money was used to, to fill in the hole of debt at the state levels. And that that's good insofar as it's not being funneled towards these uh, policing or, or sort of domestic militarized endeavors. Um, but I think uh, I think it's 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 unclear that our incarceration, the causes of mass incarceration, are as clearly um, like linear or directly relevant to the the mechanisms that most people in the activist community identify. The United States is uh, the leading incarcerator in the world, but it's of course it's not the federal government that's doing all of this incarceration. It right. is individual states that are doing it. Right. And uh, as you pointed out in a conversation we had uh, before we started recording, that there was ver there was very little variance among states relative to the United States and the rest of the world. So states are behaving broadly in this one way 
Yeah, I would just caveat that a little bit. Okay. There, there is variance in the in the outcomes. Um, I would say that variance is less than the global variance, but uh, there's less, even less variance in the sort of like logarithmic uh, growth rate. So if we're looking at growth rates, um, there's there's this consistent growth that's common across the 50 states. Um, and so I think that that's, that's puzzling in and of itself. Like it is true that it's 50 distinct jurisdictions. And if you're going to explain na the national rate, um, both this, the aggregation of all the 50 states plus the federal facilities and recognize that, oh, this is like so much higher than all these other countries. Well, you really also need a, an explanation or a theoretical explanation that explains why all of these states are seemingly operating in unison with one another. Or why is it the case that we don't have like one rogue state being like, no, we're not going to grow like you might all. You might, expect, <laughs> you might expect Texas or Florida to be outliers in imprisoning people. Uh, they're certainly outliers when it comes to executing people. But, right. but what what does your uh, work indicate is maybe a cause of that well, I think, lower variance here among states? I think a good example is to think about how the drug war in the American environment is administrated compared to how drug prohibition in other countries is administrated. So prohibition is a common feature of like every jurisdiction around the planet. Like you can't shoot up heroin or snort cocaine on the hood of your car or on the streets of Spain or Germany and expect not to get arrested. The difference is, is that we're the ones who like throw a, like it's very American that we, we, we launch wars against abstract nouns and wars are legislated and financed at the federal level. Criminal justice through most of human history is not a national issue. It's a city issue. <laughs> um, and then even in between cities, you get counties and states before you have this strong involvement of the federal government. And so what I think is that if you look at the budgetary numbers of how much money has flown from the government uh, from the federal government into state jurisdictions uh, ac across the the 20th century, it's a it's a very parallel phenomenon to uh, to the mass incarceration boom. And so I think that what's really going on here is a sort of orchestrating. Um, or, or, or like the federal puppet master pulling the strings and all of these smaller uh, independent jurisdictions falling in lockstep. There's an incentive uh, misdirection, if you will. If you're a governor and you're trying to solve crimes and you don't have a monetary source from the federal government, you've got to think about how to weigh uh, uh, the benefits and costs of policing alternatives from punishment alternatives from uh, how how what what types of crimes are worthy of this expense to incarcerate people for but if instead at the end of the day you've got like a bailout mechanism from the federal government that if we fill all of our prisons they'll come in and cut a check and we can build more or they've given us all of this funding we certainly need a venue to spend it in those are going to those are going to be the 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 path of least resistant strategies and i think that that's the common feature across these jurisdictions and it's not only common across these jurisdictions mass incarceration even though america appears a very outlier status compared to other nations the growth rate again the sort of like logarithmic approach like let's not just look at the net amounts or outcomes let's look at the trends of growth we've seen doubling and tripling of prison populations in a lot 
lot of foreign countries. It's over 68% of the countries that are measured that we have data on have all experienced systemic growth. And I think that common feature of national governmental organizational principles is, is an increased trend of centralization, an increased trend of, of a greater federal engagement or a greater national involvement in criminal justice policymaking and criminal justice expenditures. So some of this has to be driven by expectations among Americans about what they believe the federal government ought to be doing with respect to crime problems that are by all accounts local. For example, when people are running for Congress, yeah. they talk about drugs. Mm -hmm. They talk about the drug problem in their state. And and you know, if if the federal government were not uh, responsible for that, uh, voters would react more appropriately, I think, to uh, a claim from the lawmaker or the the candidate. Well, that's we don't deal with that. That's that's a state problem. You guys deal with that. Let the gov talk to the governor about this. I mean, I th I think everything you just said would would be a step in the right direction. Like if it was the federal government's response to be like, "Hey, local criminal justice issues aren't our problem. You need to figure that out on your own." I suppose like it would take a very like libertarian ethos among citizens to be like, yep, that seems like the right the right response. That is my prior. Um, I think the the nuanced vision of federal versus state responsibilities in the mind's eye of most voters leaves much to be desired from this sort of like libertarian perspective. So I think when you combine democracy with criminal justice, you, I mean, there's a reason why people sort of cliched refer to democracy in terms of mob rule, like you get these sort of like witch hunt outcomes, this punitive bias, the the, the whole voting apparatus and, and democratic uh, structure lends itself to um, appealing to people's exaggerated preferences for punishment. When, when I started lecturing and, and researching on these topics, ordinary people would share with me. They'd be like, Mah, the, the proper penalty for this or that crime should be and like insert very creepy and viscerally uh, severe things. And so I think I think uh, we, we have a lot of experimental evidence on this. Like most people are, are pretty heinous when it comes to their willingness to, to, to impose punishment on other people, especially if they think that they've been wronged or that they perceive a threat. And so democratizing uh, that is going to be a venue where, where those biases are exaggerated, not mitigated. The extent to which the feds are uh, providing either a uh, ex-ante or ex-post bailout for criminal justice programs, uh, police departments, and uh, bureaus of prisons, uh, it takes a relatively small amount of money to shift behavior in a pretty significant way. We can see that in, in public schools where the federal government is responsible for, what, 10 percent of school funding and yet a whole lot of mandates that yeah, come the, from the federal government are simply abided by uh, state bureaucracies and local schools. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, apt and parallel metaphor to, to what I'm, I'm what my research, I think, is is sort of alluding to. Um, in that vein, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm not a constitutional expert uh, in terms of like like implementing real legal fixes for these issues, but uh, I I share the same sort of appreciation for like the the motivations of constitutionalism. Like Friedman recognized that inflation was uh, a really big potential problem and manipulating the money supply is sort of a natural pro proclivity of governmental authority. And so he, 
in, he often said, he would, uh, put it in the Constitution, a 2% amendment. Like, um, it doesn't matter if 2% is the right number per se, but what he was, I think, getting at is the idea that, like, well, we would need to build this in to the sort of pre-constitutional condition. You don't want to make it so that the administrative apparatus could redefine the rules willy-nilly or, or all the time. We would need to say, oh... Uh, like a clear delineation of authority that criminal justice matters are reserved to local um, local law enforcement and local um, local governance apart from from the federal government. I don't I don't know how to to accomplish that, but I do think that looking at the constitutional level is 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 my hunch. It, I think it's sort of implying what needs to be done. There is uh, even resistance by police departments from, and this is. You know, I think the most uh, sexy part of criminal justice reform is, of course, uh, civil forfeiture. And that is, in your view, a symptom or is just cops being cops? I mean, so my understanding is that civil asset forfeiture is sort of part and parcel of uh, a policy that was reinforced or at least complicit uh, uh, by the federal government. Um, in other words, um, if you said to local, if you said to a local jurisdiction, we want you to enforce drug prohibition. We think that lots of cocaine and opiates are coming in from Central and South America. You're in Oklahoma. Your your local constituents want to be able to to maybe do drugs uh, in the comfort of their own living rooms and aren't really keen on SWAT raids and all of this other stuff, how can we get the local legislators to ignore their constituents and instead abide by this federal government? Well, direct financial incentives, right? Well, we'll pay to outfit your police uh, in the services or will give you the legislative ability to confiscate and, and, and retain the cash value of the things that you, you seize an asset. Again, that's the sort of like way to, to get those incentives in line so that they would uh, enforce what are otherwise nationally legislated uh, protocols. So we're seeing like this sort of tension in marijuana reform right now because you've got local states that want it and some sense of federal government saying, well, we shouldn't like be letting this happen. So there were federal raids on Colorado dispensaries and stuff like that. So do you see that uh, you know the the left in a, in a sense sort of owns the idea of hey let's deal with mass incarceration and yet this is what you just described is no part of that conversation. Yeah, I mean I think that there's a, a an asymmetry here. I think the left has all sorts of reasonable complaints on this issue, but it's actually Absolutely. it's actually sort of like cookie cutter conservative, uh, fiscal conservatism that is probably the arena of answers for the problem. Um, Michael Tonry um, and uh, I think Norval Morris had a, a sort of survey article about sentencing reform in the mid-1990s. One of the problems is we think that this is new. Um, we think that the, the the bipartisan reform attention or the scholarly community is only newly getting on, on board with this. No, there were scholars talking about the rate of prison growth as early as the first five years of prison growth in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. Right off the bat, people were like, whoa, we can't keep going at this rate. Like, like these are exponential numbers. Like if we keep growing, we'll have more people in jail than we have in the streets and stuff like that. So people were, were immediately talking about the potential for, for fiscal and, and sort of resource crisis in the criminal justice in very earlier periods. And uh, what they noticed was that there, there's been a smorgasbord 
of sort of experimentation at the state level of like, okay, well, let's have sentencing commissions and sentencing grids and like get experts from the federal uh, sentencing commission to inform our local judges and juries and all sorts of stuff. And so they try some proposals in these states and other proposals in these other states. And the one thing where where you see a consistent relationship of declined inmate uh, populations is when the state is bankrupt. <laughs> um, it didn't, there wasn't really like a strong scientific consensus that like reform sentencing projects of, of this type work and, and of that type don't work. It was instead, no, 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 the the bankrupt states have actually cut their their prison population rates because they've just stopped building prisons. Um, because at some point the the benefits are no longer there right. and the costs are ever present. Right, and so I mean the only real thing that we've seen again in in, in cash. Uh, cash-deprived states like California is that we have seen that they've been able to get rid of policies that they could identify were driving, uh, were driving the trend. Um, so, so eliminating things like mandatory minimums and those sorts of things. Again, I'm, I'm all on board with that, but the sustainability of it, um, given that it's politically viable, given that there's a voter base that likes uh, severity, given that there's real political interest to pander to that sentiment, you've got to ask yourself, well, what, what what's going to be like a real sort of lasting reform, it's got to be some sort of uh, rearrangement of the the scope of authority, what level of our federalist system is an appropriate one to make criminal justice decisions. Daniel D'Amico is a lecturer in economics at Brown University. We spoke in June. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.